Part Fourth, Chapter Six of Jude the Obscure. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Jude the Obscure by Thomas Hardy. Book Fourth, Chapter Six. In returning to his native town of Shaston as schoolmaster, Phillotson had won the interest and awakened the memories of the inhabitants, who, though they did not honour him for his miscellaneous acquirements as he would have been honoured elsewhere, retained for him a sincere regard. When shortly after his arrival he brought home a pretty wife, awkwardly pretty for him, if he did not take care, they said, they were glad to have her settle among them. For some time after her flight from that home, Sue's absence did not excite comment. Her place as monitor in the school was taken by another young woman within a few days of her vacating it, which substitution also passed without remark, Sue's services having been of a provisional nature only. When, however, a month had passed and Phillotson casually admitted to an acquaintance that he did not know where his wife was staying, curiosity began to be aroused, till, jumping to conclusions, people ventured to affirm that Sue had played him false and run away from him. The schoolmaster's growing languor and listlessness over his work gave countenance to the idea. Though Phillotson had held his tongue as long as he could, except to his friend Gillingham, his honesty and directness would not allow him to do so when misapprehensions as to Sue's conduct spread abroad. On a Monday morning the chairman of the school committee called, and after attending to the business of the school, drew Phillotson aside, out of earshot of the children. "'You'll excuse my asking, Phillotson, since everybody is talking of it, is it true as to your domestic affairs that your wife's going away was on no visit but a secret elopement with a lover if so i condole with you don't said phillotson there was no secret about it she has gone to visit friends no then what has happened she has gone away under circumstances that usually call for condolence with the husband but i gave my consent the chairman looked as if he had not apprehended the remark what i say is quite true Phillotson continued testily. She asked leave to go away with her lover, and I let her. Why shouldn't I? A woman of full age, it was a question of her own conscience, not for me. I was not her jailer. I can't explain it any further. I don't wish to be questioned. The children observed that much seriousness marked the faces of the two men, and went home and told their parents that something new had happened about Mrs. Phillotson. Then Phillotson's little maidservant, who was a schoolgirl just out of her standards, said that Mr. Phillotson had helped in his wife's packing, had offered her what money she required, and had written a friendly letter to her young man, telling him to take care of her. The chairman of the committee thought the matter over, and talked to the other managers of the school, till a request came to Phillotson to meet them privately. The meeting lasted a long time, and at the end the schoolmaster came home, looking as usual pale and worn. Gillingham was sitting in his house waiting for him. "'Well, it is as you said,' observed Phillotson, flinging himself down wearily in a chair. "'They have asked me to send in my resignation on account of my scandalous conduct in giving my tortured wife her liberty, or, as they call it, condoning her adultery. But I shan't resign. I think I would. I won't. It is no business of theirs. It doesn't affect me in my public capacity at all. They may expel me, if they like. If you make a fuss, it will get into the papers, and you'll never get appointed to another school. You see—' They have to consider what you did as done by a teacher of youth, and its effects as such upon the morals of the town, and, to ordinary opinion, your position is indefensible. You must let me say that. 
To this good advice, however, Phillotson would not listen. I don't care, he said. I don't go unless I am turned out, and for this reason, that by resigning I acknowledge I have acted wrongly by her, when I am more and more convinced every day that in the sight of heaven and by all natural, straightforward humanity I have acted rightly. Gellingham saw that his rather headstrong friend would not be able to maintain such a position as this, but he said nothing further, and in due time, indeed, in a quarter of an hour, the formal letter of dismissal arrived, the managers having remained behind to write it after Phillotson's withdrawal. The latter replied that he should not accept dismissal, and called a public meeting, which he attended, although he looked so weak and ill that his friend implored him to stay at home. When he stood up to give his reasons for contesting the decision of the managers, he advanced them firmly, as he had done to his friend, and contended, moreover, that the matter was a domestic theory which did not concern them. This they overruled, insisting that the private eccentricities of a teacher came quite within their sphere of control, as it touched the morals of those he taught. Phillotson replied that he did not see how an act of natural charity could injure morals. All the respectable inhabitants and well-to-do fellow-natives of the town were against Phillotson to a man, but somewhat to his surprise some dozen or more champions rose up in his defence as from the ground. It has been stated that Shaston was the anchorage of a curious and interesting group of itinerants, who frequented the numerous fairs and markets held up and down Wessex during the summer and autumn months. Although Phillotson had never spoken to one of these gentlemen, they now nobly led the forlorn hope in his defence. The body included two cheap jacks, a shooting-gallery proprietor, and the ladies who loaded the guns, a pair of boxing-masters, a steam-roundabout manager, two travelling broom-makers who called themselves widows, a gingerbread stall-keeper, a swing-boat owner, and a test-your-strength man. This generous phalanx of supporters, and a few others of independent judgment, whose own domestic experiences had not been without vicissitude, came up and warmly shook hands with Phillotson, after which they expressed their thoughts so strongly to the meeting that issue was joined, the result being a general scuffle, wherein a blackboard was split, three panes of the school windows were broken, an ink-bottle was spilled over a town councillor's shirt-front, a church-warden was dealt such a topper with the map of Palestine that his head went right through Samaria, and many black eyes and bleeding noses were given, one of which, to everybody's horror, was the venerable incumbents, owing to the zeal of an emancipated chimney-sweep, who took the side of Phillotson's party. When Phillotson saw the blood running down the rector's face, he deplored almost in groans the untoward and degrading circumstances, regretted that he had not resigned when called upon, and went home so ill that next morning he could not leave his bed. The farcical yet melancholy event was the beginning of a serious illness for him, and he lay in his lonely bed in the pathetic state of mind of a middle-aged man who perceives at length that his life, intellectual and domestic, is tending to failure and gloom. Gillingham came to see him in the evenings, and on one occasion mentioned Sue's name. "'She doesn't care anything about me,' said Phillotson. "'Why should she?' "'She doesn't know you are ill.' so much the better for both of us. Where are her lover and she living? At Melchester, I suppose. At least he was living there some time ago. When Gillingham reached home he sat and reflected, and at last wrote an anonymous line to Sue, on the bare chance of its reaching her. The letter being enclosed in an envelope addressed to Jude at the diocesan capital. Arriving at that place it was forwarded to Mary Green in North Wessex, and thence to Aldbrickham, by the only person who knew his present address, the widow who had nursed his aunt. 
Three days later, in the evening, when the sun was going down in splendour over the lowlands of Blackmoor, and making the Shaston windows like tongues of fire to the eyes of the rustics in that vale, the sick man fancied that he heard somebody come to the house, and a few minutes after there was a tap at the bedroom door. Phillotson did not speak. The door was hesitatingly opened, and there entered Sue. She was in light spring clothing, and her advent seemed ghostly, like the flitting in of a moth. He turned his eyes upon her, and flushed, but appeared to check his primary impulse to speak. "'I have no business here,' she said, bending her frightened face to him. "'But I heard you were ill, very ill, and as I know that you recognize other feelings between man and woman than physical love, I have come.' "'I am not very ill, my dear friend, only unwell.' "'I didn't know that, and I am afraid that only a severe illness would have justified my coming.' "'Yes, yes, and I almost wish you had not come. It is a little too soon, that's all I mean. Still, let us make the best of it. You haven't heard about the school, I suppose?' "'No, what about it?' "'Only that I am going away from here to another place. The managers and I don't agree, and we are going to part, that's all.' Sue did not for a moment, either now or later, suspect what troubles had resulted to him from letting her go. It never once seemed to cross her mind and she had received no news whatever from Shaston. They talked on slight and ephemeral subjects, and when his tea was brought up, he told the amazed little servant that a cup was to be set for Sue. That young person was much more interested in their history than they supposed, and as she descended the stairs she lifted her eyes and hands in grotesque amazement. While they sipped, Sue went to the window and thoughtfully said, "'It's such a beautiful sunset, Richard.' "'They are mostly beautiful from here.' owing to the rays crossing the mist of the veil, but I lose them all, as they don't shine into this gloomy corner where I lie. Wouldn't you like to see this particular one? It is like heaven opened. Ah, yes, but I can't. I'll help you to. No, the bedstead can't be shifted. But see how I mean. She went to where a swing-glass stood, and taking it in her hands, carried it to a spot by the window where it could catch the sunshine, moving the glass till the beams were reflected on Phillotson's face. "'There, you can see the great red sun now,' she said, "'and I am sure it will cheer you. I do so hope it will.' She spoke with a childlike, repentant kindness, as if she could not do too much for him. Phillotson smiled sadly. "'You are an odd creature,' he murmured as the sun glowed in his eyes. "'The idea of your coming to see me after what has passed.' "'Don't let us go back upon that,' she said quickly. "'I have to catch the omnibus for the train, as Jew doesn't know I have come.' He was out when I started, so I must return home almost directly. Richard, I am so very glad you are better. You don't hate me, do you? You have been such a kind friend to me. I am glad to know you think so, said Phillotson huskily. No, I don't hate you. It grew dusk quickly in the gloomy room during their intermittent chat, and when candles were brought and it was time to leave, she put her hand in his, or rather allowed it to flit through his, for she was significantly light in touch. She had nearly closed the door when he said, Sue! He had noticed that, and turning away from him, tears were on her face and a quiver in her lip. It was bad policy to recall her. He knew it while he pursued it, but he could not help it. She came back. Sue, he murmured, do you wish to make it up and stay? I'll forgive you and condone everything. Oh, you can't, you can't, she said hastily. You can't condone it now. He is your husband now, in effect, you mean, of course? You may assume it. He is obtaining a divorce from his wife, Arabella. His wife? 
It is altogether news to me that he has a wife. It was a bad marriage. Like yours. Like mine. He is not doing it so much on his own account as on hers. She wrote and told him it would be a kindness to her, since then she could marry and live respectably, and Jude has agreed. A wife, a kindness to her, ah, yes, a kindness to her to release her altogether, but I don't like the sound of it. I can forgive, Sue. No, no, you can't have me back, now I've been so wicked, as to do what I have done. There had arisen in Sue's face an incipient fright which showed itself whenever he changed from friend to husband, and which made her adopt any line of defence against marital feeling in him. I must go now. I'll come again, may I? I don't ask you to go even now. I ask you to stay. I thank you, Richard, but I must. As you are not so ill as I thought, I cannot stay. She's his, his, from lips to heel, said Phillotson, but so faintly that in closing the door she did not hear it. The dread of a reactionary change in the schoolmaster's sentiments, coupled, perhaps, with a faint shamefacedness, at letting him even know what a slipshod lack of thoroughness from a man's point of view characterized her transferred allegiance, prevented her telling him of her, thus far, incomplete relations with Jude, and Phillotson lay writhing like a man in hell, as he pictured the prettily dressed, maddening compound of sympathy and adverseness who bore his name, returning impatiently to the home of her lover. Gillingham was so interested in Phillotson's affairs, and so seriously concerned about him, that he walked up the hillside to Shaston two or three times a week, although there and back it was a journey of nine miles, which had to be performed between tea and supper after a hard day's work in school. When he called on the next occasion after Sue's visit, his friend was downstairs, and Gillingham noticed that his restless mood had been supplanted by a more fixed and composed one. "'She's been here since you called last,' said Phillotson. "'Not Mrs. Phillotson?' "'Yes.' "'Ah, you have made it up?' "'No. She just came, patted my pillow with her little white hand, played the thoughtful nurse for half an hour, and went away. "'Well, I'm hanged. A little hussy. What do you say?' "'Oh, nothing. What do you mean?' I mean, what a tantalizing, capricious little woman, if she were not your wife. She is not. She is another man's, except in name and law. And I have been thinking. It was suggested to me by a conversation I had with her, that, in kindness to her, I ought to dissolve the legal tie altogether, which, singularly enough, I think I can do, now she has been back, and refused my request to stay after I said I had forgiven her. I believe that fact would afford me opportunity of doing it, though I did not see it at the moment. What's the use of keeping her chained on to me if she doesn't belong to me? I know, I feel absolutely certain, that she would welcome my taking such a step as the greatest charity to her. For though, as a fellow-creature, she sympathizes with, and pities me, and even weeps for me, as a husband she cannot endure me. She loathes me. There's no use in mincing words. She loathes me. And my only manly, and dignified, and merciful course is to complete what I have begun and for worldly reasons, too, it would be better for her to be independent. I have hopelessly ruined my prospects because of my decision as to what was best for us, though she does not know it. I see only dire poverty ahead, from my feet to the grave, for I can be accepted as teacher no more. I shall probably have enough to do to make both ends meet during the remainder of my life, now my occupation's gone, and I shall be better able to bear it alone. I may as well tell you, that what has suggested my letting her go is some news she brought me, the news that Folly is doing the same. Oh, he had a spouse, too. A queer couple, these lovers. Well, I don't want your opinion on that. 
what I am going to say is that my liberating her can do her no possible harm, and will open up a chance of happiness for her which she has never dreamt of hitherto. For then they'll be able to marry, as they ought to have done at first. Gillingham did not hurry to reply. I may disagree with your motive, he said gently, for he respected views he could not share. But I think you are right in your determination, if you can carry it out. I doubt, however, if you can. End of Part Fourth Chapter Six End of Part Fourth